half years. I'm a midwife um, by trade, but I work at a university. Uh, so for the students in the room, if you're wondering, yes, I am drinking coffee from now until February when you're back. Uh, so that's my cross to bear. Um, but as I stand up here tonight, I am um, pretty aware that it's been a really big week with everything that's been going on in our communities and it's close to Christmas and we're all feeling pretty tired. So just really want to um, encourage you that when we get together, God's with us and we can find hope in his word. And I am actually really excited to do that with you tonight. Tonight's a big one. Uh, there's no two ways about that. Last week, Nick introduced um, a two-week series called Distinctives of Discipleship. And what we're doing is we're exploring what it looks like and what it costs to be a follower of Jesus. So we're in the book of Luke, which was written by a doctor uh, who was seeking to provide a detailed account of Jesus's life and of his teaching. And we're looking specifically at chapter 14. So Nick took us through that first um, part last week where we were encouraged to flip the cultural script um, on the things that we do. Uh, so we learnt that to follow Jesus means to seek service over exaltation, humility over pride and generosity over popularity. The passage concluded with an invitation to come and be seated at God's banquet. And so tonight, we pick up where Jesus then steps out the terms that are implicit to that invitation, the T's and C's, as it were. So we're starting at verse 25, and we're working our way through to the chapter end. And what we're going to find is that to be a disciple of Christ, we've got to put him first. We have to be all in, willing to surrender everything we have and everything that we hold dear, even our loved ones and even our very own lives. It will be costly, and Jesus warns us to consider that carefully before we decide to follow him. But if we do, it'll be more than worth it. Our investment will be returned to us more than a hundredfold when we get to spend eternity in heaven with God. So it's exciting, and I want to get into it, but let's pray first. Heavenly Father, Thank you that we have the opportunity to read and study your word together and that in this place and in this time we do that in freedom. And Lord, I just pray that you would give us energy um, for this word, um, that you would help us to see it with clarity, with open hearts, and that we would learn what we need to learn, Lord. Amen. All right. So I've broken the passage up into three key points that I think sum up what Jesus is asking of his disciples. To dethrone our idols, to carry our cross, and to count the cost. The words will be on the screen, and I'm in the ESV or the English Standard Version tonight, but feel free to follow along with your Bibles as well. So we begin with this. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. When I first read that, I was like, oh, hate your family. It's quite the crowd opener, Jesus. Um, remember, he had quite a following of people at this point, but he doesn't try and guard his popularity by telling them something that's easy to hear or what they might want to hear. In fact, it's almost as if he's calling out that crowd. 
And some of you will be sitting here and you'll be thinking, like, how can I hate those that are closest to me? And doesn't the Bible tell us to love our enemies? And doesn't it say if we hate someone, we're a murderer? So how does, how does all that fit? And they're all really good points. There might be others of you who are sitting here thinking, hate your family, no problem, way ahead of you. <laughs> if that's you, I feel like not so fair a point. Um, I don't think this is Jesus' permission to skip Christmas lunch. Don't go pulling out Luke. But if we flip to another gospel for a second, the gospel of Matthew, and we make our way to chapter 10, I think we find a passage that helps us to understand what Jesus means by the term hate in this context. Verses 34 to 37 quote him as saying this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In this instance, the term hate means a relative disregard in comparison to our love for God. So put simply, we're not being called to hate anyone, but rather to love them with a lesser love than that which we love God. Family and friends are good gifts that God gives us, and make no mistake, we are called to love them and to treat them with respect. There's plenty of spots in the Bible that make that abundantly clear. Um, Matthew 19.9 says we should honour our Father. Um, John 13.35 calls us to love each other. Uh, Matthew 22, verse 39, challenges us to love our neighbour as ourselves. So Jesus is not calling us to hate anyone here, at least not in the sense that we understand the word, but rather to love him so much that even the deep affection that we have for our mother and our father and the people that we live with pale in comparison to that love that we have for God. And we know our God is a jealous God. In Exodus 20, he makes it very clear that he isn't prepared to share the throne of our hearts with any rival, even the good things that he's gifted us with. But further to that, given the context, I actually think Jesus is making a point about discipleship here. When he says, you cannot be my disciple if you're loving your tribe or you're loving your life more than you're loving me, I don't read that as a punitive statement. I don't read that as him trying to punish us. I actually read it as a warning that as humans, we are discipled by that which holds the depth of our affections. We humans have a terrible knack um, for making good things ultimate things. And when we do, they come between us and the kingdom of God. If we love anything more than we love God, It's our own hearts that won't allow us to be his disciples because we'll be chasing after that which we love the most. A couple of chapters on in Luke 16, verse 13, Jesus tells us straight, no servant can serve two masters. Whatever we love the most is what we become a disciple of. And even scarier than that, we will go on to make disciples of that thing too. You see it all the time. When a football is a father's religion, soon enough, so it's his son's. Or when a woman chases after beauty and romance above all things, that's what her daughter learns to do. 
And there are lots of philosophies out there that exist that I think would call out worship of things like football or, or beauty. That's pretty obvious. But family, partners and children, and even life itself, Jesus really goes after the higher things here. My dad and I have been through a lot together over the last few years, and my goodness, I love that man. We nursed my mum together. We buried her together. We grieved together. We packed up the family home together. It has been such an intense season, and I have always known um, that God really called me to help him and serve him and encourage him and learn from him. Certainly wasn't seamless. We're two stubborn people. Um, we didn't always see eye to eye. We still don't. But we learned to operate as a team. And now that God is ushering us into a new season, I'm actually finding it really hard to let go. I'm being called to new things in my personal life, in my ministry, in lots of different ways. God is saying, here are some other things to do. And it's really, really hard. Sometimes I leave him in tears because I love him so much and I hate leaving him alone. And it breaks my heart and I want to see more for him. He suffered some significant stresses and setbacks lately. And the other day after I visited him, I walked away and I just had such a deep sense of conflict. And I was wrestling with God because I was like, every time you pull me in a new direction, God, I feel like you're leaving Dad without anyone. And then I just had this real sense of rebuke like this, the spirit just kind of said, who do you follow? Do you, do you follow your dad or do you follow me? And it was like the nudge was almost tangible. Just go and do what you've been asked to do, Amy. And I promise you, I will take care of your dad. I love him way more than you could. And it's so true. To refuse to take the steps that I believe God is asking me to do denies both myself and him of the good of God's plan for each of us. So maybe like me, you sense God is making a new claim on your time or attention, but you're afraid of what that's going to mean for others around you. Or it could be that you're hearing the call to move and you don't want to leave your family and friends. Or perhaps you're feeling a conviction to redefine the boundaries or the way that you interact with a significant other, but you don't want to deny them stuff and you don't want to make them feel unwanted. It might be that choosing to follow Jesus displeases people that are close to you. As Christians, we will be called upon to make choices in this world that look as though we hate our family or even our very own lives in the sense that it might appear that we don't care about their well-being. Or not really. But it's not that we don't care. Rather, it's that first and foremost we're devoted to God and therefore we care about obedience to him above everything else. And we can actually rest easy because when God sits at the throne of our heart, it actually allows us to love people and to love things properly, to love them rightly, because we stop making them bear the weight of our worship. As I said, often the things that we um, hold dear are the good things that he's given us to enjoy in this life. But when we place our hope in them and not in him, we put on them an enormous burden that they were not designed to bear. On this earth, every joy is going to have its limits. Every birth finds its epilogue in death. Every relationship has its disappointments and every season will end. Tim Keller put it like this. If you love anything in this world more than God, 
you will crush it under the weight of your expectations. It isn't a one-time offering. It's, it's taking things back to God all the time, all the time, and saying, I'm sorry, have it back, have it back, have it back. But in dethroning our idols, we allow good things to be just that, good things, not ultimate. And it's very countercultural, and it may be misunderstood by those around you. The reality is your family and your friends may not be the ones who understand or affirm your calling. You may face offence. You might even cop some ridicule. But as we're about to see, that is not unexpected when you follow Christ. Jesus goes on to say this, Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. In ancient times, the cross was an instrument of execution and therefore, obviously, it's a symbol of pain and suffering and death. And when the Romans led a criminal to his execution site, they would force him to carry the cross on which he would die as a public demonstration of his submission to Rome. So I think that when Jesus says that we have to bear our own cross and follow after him, what he's asking us to do is submit to him, and in doing so, we die to ourselves. He's asking us to choose him over our relationships, over our popularity, over our comfort, our desires, our plans, even our very lives. And he warns us that it will be hard. The path to the kingdom of God is narrow, and walking it will include suffering. To follow Jesus is to follow the footsteps of a man who was ridiculed, hated, hunted, and he laid down his life for a people who rejected him, tortured him, and nailed him to a cross. The Son of God was not spared suffering, and so it would be crazy naive to assume that those who follow him would. I wanted to take Joseph from the Old Testament as an example heavily borrowed from Desiring God, by the way. So if you don't have the app, download it, because it's one of my favourite things. Joseph was a late-in-life baby, and therefore he was a favourite of his dad's. I can confirm I was a late-in-life baby. The best children I always saved till last, so it wasn't his fault. Um, but God gave Joseph a couple of dreams that promised this glorious future in which his brothers would bow down to him, and he told them about it. Interesting move. Um, as you can imagine, they went full middle children. They didn't love hearing that. And so when they got the chance, they faked Joseph's death to their dad and they sold him as a slave. They sold him as a slave. So that is some cross to bear. But Joseph remained in close relationship with God. His master Potiphar, who was an officer of Pharaoh, could see that God blessed Joseph with success, and so he made him the overseer of his house. Things were all of a sudden looking up. Joseph must have thought, this is what I was waiting for. But he was also cursed with good looks, one would imagine. So Potiphar's wife thought, mm, bit of a fitty. And <laughs> she was a modern woman, so she was like, I'm going to make a move. I'm going to go for this. And in that moment, Joseph demonstrates unwavering commitment to God and to righteous behaviour, and he says, no. He turns her down. And my goodness, he pays an enormous price for it. She gets her revenge. She twists the story. She says, oh, Joseph made advances on me. 
And Potiphar, of course, is furious. This man has hit on my wife. And so he throws him into prison. And I can only imagine that in prison, that must have looked and felt like a world away from the glorious future that Joseph was waiting for. But despite the setback, Joseph remains faithful to the Lord. And the Lord was with him in prison. God helped Joseph to interpret some dreams and eventually he ended up correctly anticipating that there would be years of plenty and then years of famine in Egypt. And the Pharaoh recognised Joseph's God-given gifts and abilities and so he made him the chief administrator of Egypt. With wisdom provided by God, Joseph stores enough food for the famine and in a divinely appointed plot twist, he's reunited with his family and he offers them unconditional forgiveness. He tells his brothers... You need not feel guilty for what you did to me, because although you meant it to harm me, God meant it for good. You see, Joseph recognised that all those low points on that little chart, all that suffering, that was his cross to bear. I want to be really clear. I don't believe that our good God causes bad things to happen. But if he is sovereign, then it stands to reason that he does allow them, because they happen. And I believe with all my heart, as Joseph did, that he doesn't let them go to waste, but he uses them to prepare us for glory. My mum had cancer for 15 years, and she considered that a ministry and a means by which she grew closer to God. She didn't get better, not on this earth. Would she have rathered a different route? Absolutely. She didn't love suffering for suffering's sake. She wasn't a martyr. But she understood that it produced things that she could be thankful for. Even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said to his father, if there is any other way, God, I would rather that. But he submitted to God's will and now he's seated in eternal glory. Our lives are not going to look exactly like Joseph's life looked. I don't imagine that many of you are burdened with women throwing themselves at you all the time. Maybe you are, maybe you're a magnet, that's your cross to bear, I don't know. But what Jesus said is we bear our own cross, our own cross, not a generic one, not someone else's cross, but our own. So some Christians on this earth literally give up their life for faith. Others are asked to serve in really challenging ways. Some are called upon to make great sacrifices. Others are asked to walk a really hard road with integrity. Some people endure opposition, exclusion, loneliness, loss, illness, unfulfilled dreams. Other people, you know, it's inherently good season of life. Pick anything, marriage, parenthood, but they still have their hard bits. They still have their moments. Sometimes we suffer things because of our faith and sometimes our faith informs the way that we suffer things. But no one, not even Jesus, completed the race that was set before him and passed into glory without suffering. No one. Christianity is a humble calling to follow a humble saviour. And in doing so, we can expect to be treated in kind because no servant is greater than his master. That's John chapter 15, verse 19. So at this point, Jesus has outlined two major costs of discipleship, dethroning our idols and bearing our cross. 
He then urges us to count the costs, to be fully aware and consider the price before we commit, saying, for which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has, had, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Before we unpack what that means for us, I want to make an important distinction here. Jesus is not saying that a relationship with God is bought at a price that we pay. We are saved and restored because God is gracious and he bestows upon us forgiveness as a completely free gift. We can't do anything to earn that. It, it reflects God's character. It doesn't reflect ours. And because we don't earn it, we can't lose it either. But it doesn't mean that being a Christian isn't costly. And that's what Jesus is reiterating here. My all-time favourite writer is a man named Charles Spurgeon. And he uses the example of Jesus restoring sight to the blind beggar. Would Jesus require that man to pay some sort of price for his healing? Of course not. Healing is a merciful gift that God gives us when it's for our good and it's for his glory. He does that because he loves us. But once a man has eyes, he then has to bear the responsibilities of someone with sight. So presumably from that point on, he has to go and work and earn his food. He can't continue to beg. He'd be conscious of the darkness of night. He's conscious of sad sights around him. Our hearts and our minds, they don't grieve things that we can't see or that we don't know about. But when we do, that's when we start to pay a price of duty or of sorrow or both. And I think it's the same with Christianity. Remember, um, there was a time when my mum got really sick and she had to go into hospital for a little bit. Um, and so um, after a couple of days, they moved her into a shared room. So she was sharing with, with three or four other um, poor ladies, as you'll soon realise. Um, and we weren't allowed to stay overnight, so I went home to sleep and I was a bit reluctant about it, but those are the rules, so I went home. And at three in the morning, the nurse rang me and she was like, um, you have to come back. She was like, your, your mum is inconsolable, um, you need to come back. And I was like, what is wrong? And she was like, I decay, <laughs> I don't know, but she's waking everyone up. If you could just come back and sort it out, that'd be awesome. And I was like, okay. <laughs> As I jumped in the car, um, three o'clock in the morning, raced down there thinking, you know, what's wrong, what's wrong? And I walk in and she was. So she's sitting bolt upright in bed. There's people in bays around her trying to sleep and she is just full ugly cry. And I was like, mum, what on earth is wrong? You know what she said? She was, not everybody loves Jesus. <laughs> and she was just bawling and I was like, sorry? <laughs> and she was like, Jesus just loves us so much. And, and I love him so much, but not everybody loves him. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I was like, 
I get that. That's very true. It's also three in the morning, so I feel like maybe we need to do a little bit less, bring it down, let's deep breaths. And she was like, deep breaths? No, we're not having deep breaths. She said, we need to start praying. <laughs> and when I look back on that, I think, yeah, you know what? God was breaking mum's heart for the things that break his heart. She was feeling a deep sorrow because she knows that there are people that don't live in the freedom of Christ. And I remember in the morning she said, you know, you probably think I'm crazy. And I was like, do you know what, Mum? I actually think that in that moment you are, you are seeing things far more clearly than any of the rest of us. When we decide to follow Jesus, we receive the wonderful gift of free forgiveness and we learn about God's truth, about this life and the next, and I believe that that holds the key to the best for us. But certain consequences will flow from it. There will be duty and there will be sorrow. In Luke uh, chapter 12, Jesus warned us that for everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask more. And so we need to really carefully consider whether or not we're willing to accept that. It's common sense. You don't marry someone without seriously considering the weight of a commitment to them. Can you do thick and thin with them? Can you do it till your life's end? And it's the same with faith. Eternal things are not to be taken lightly. And to make a careless commitment to them will most likely end in failure. The first illustration of commitment that Jesus draws is the building of a tower. Now, when we build anything, let alone something as big as a tower, we know that it takes careful planning to be successful. No one sets out to build a tower without first considering what it will cost and making sure that they have enough to see the project through. Because if they did, and then they had to abandon it unfinished, well, that would be a tragic failure, and it would stand as a monument to a foolish choice. No one would be that careless, right? So let's imagine that tower to symbolise our Christian character, our pursuit of godliness through to eternity. So we begin at the bedrock, and that's our gospel. And then we're empowered by God's spirit. So we start to lay a foundation of faith, and we do that in prayer and in worship and word and fellowship. And then we begin the long and arduous process of spiritual maturity, brick by brick, layer by layer, aiming as high as heaven. And sometimes you hit here and you think, man, I, I feel like I've learned this lesson before. But you're learning at a higher level and you're learning at a higher level. We're urged not to get caught off guard when the going gets tough because Romans 5 verses 3 to 8 tell us that God actually uses hardship to produce in us endurance and character and hope. And it doesn't mean there won't be times when we find the work overwhelming and we grieve the cost. Of course we will because we're human. We know that we don't have the sufficiency in ourselves to complete that tower. But we also know and we believe in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 where we are told that God's grace is sufficient for us. And so we press on in his strength, another brick, another layer, until the day Jesus returns and the good work that the Lord has been doing in us is completed. Then Jesus uses the imagery of war, again to illustrate the importance of carefully thought through commitment. 
It only takes a quick Google search to find out what happens when a military leader thinks that they can big dog an absolute bear of an opponent. When troops are sent out and they're outgunned and they're outmanned, they generally suffer a brutal defeat. I have a friend who's a soldier and he tells me epic stories of training regimes and drills and conditioning exercises and it makes me shudder. But whenever I, I sort of offer sympathy, he, he waves it away. He says, I knew what I was getting into. That's the price you pay. You've got to be ready to deploy. The Christian life is kind of like a, a warfare. We're told that many times in the Bible. And to expect that the battlefield upon which our faith is fought to be filled with nothing but easy wins is naive and it's dangerous. Satan and his army are strong opponents and they are always looking to distract us, to discourage us and ultimately to take us out. In 2 Timothy 2 verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul urges believers to be ready for that. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, says Paul. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Disciples of Jesus are called to consider the cost before they sign up. Are we willing to endure hard times? Are we willing to disentangle ourselves from the pleasures of this world? And are we willing to go all in for Jesus? I also think it's um, important that we don't miss the point that Jesus compared discipleship to building a tower here. He didn't say building a shanty or a shelter. He said a tower. And he said waging a war, not a fistfight. He paints really dramatic pictures. And I think that should illuminate to us the high stakes we're talking here. Jesus could never be accused of presenting a bait-and-switch gospel. That's absolutely for certain. He's not a dodgy used car salesman. He doesn't try and recruit us under false pretenses. He doesn't make it sound glamorous and easy just to get us in the door. This text makes it abundantly clear that following Jesus means an absolute, unconditional surrender to God. And if we aren't prepared to give him that, then as hard as it is to hear, and it's so hard to say, we might be admirers of Jesus, but we're not yet his disciples. Nick began this series with um, the actual conclusion of Jesus' teaching in the passage, and we come back to it full circle now. Jesus warns us, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. We know that salt provides flavour and it preserves food for enjoyment. But the thing with salt is, if it gets wet and then it dries out, it loses its taste. And salt without saltiness would be a reasonably useless exercise in cooking. Jesus indicates that it's the same with his followers. When we surrender to him and his spirit begins to transform us into his image, we bring good flavour into this world and we can do much to preserve that which is good but it's a case of putting him first, whatever that costs. And we'll, we scramble, we're humans, so we scramble to try and grab things back sometimes and he will work with us on that if we keep handing it back over. 
we're not always going to get this right. But if we turn around and we abandon our faith altogether, we cease to represent Christ in this world. In the last book of the Bible, Revelation, we're warned that lukewarm Christians are spat from his mouth. Be hot or be cold, but don't be half-hearted or hypocritical. And they're such jarring words. I Believe me, I know. I have wrestled with them over the last few weeks. And I want to be abundantly clear um, that we are not expected to bear our cross and follow after Jesus in our own strength. In fact, I think when we try and do that, we either fail miserably or we succeed to some extent and then we become prideful. And that ain't good either. But when we choose him, we get his spirit and he empowers us to be all that he calls us to be. We might stumble and fall, but he picks us up. Romans 8, 16 to 18 sums it up for us. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We're going to finish up um, really shortly, but I just wanted to make one final point. I said a moment ago that this is not a bait-and-switch gospel, that God doesn't try and package the truth up in a more palliative form. And I think that's because he doesn't need to. Because we may be talking high stakes here in terms of the cost, but it's even more so in terms of the reward. In his letter to the church in Corinth, Paul penned these words, and they're my favourite. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for a weight of eternal glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal." The reality is that the truth is way more beautiful than our tiny human brains can even comprehend. In 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, we read that no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. You see, what Satan does is Satan showcases the best of what he has to offer and he hides the worst because he knows that the latter outweighs the former. So in big, bold print, he says, come and worship me. It's going to be easy, Street. I'll give you everything that your flesh desires. And then in really, really small, fine print, down the bottom, it says, and after the fleeting pleasures, the stolen bread will turn to gravel in your mouth, and you will suffer an eternity in hell with me. But Jesus... There is no fine print to God's gospel. The cost of following him is so worth it that his radically honest invitation will stand against scrutiny. In an early chapter of Luke, Jesus was quoted saying this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Being disciples of Jesus means that we need to dethrone our idols, 
carry our cross and count the cost. The Christian life is hard sometimes. It can cost us our relationships, our reputation, treasured possessions, our comfort. But even if it does, what is that in comparison to an eternity with God? And when we're feeling down and out on the bad days when that eternal perspective seems too high to grasp, then what we can do is remember that we follow a God who walked this path before us and he doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't already done tenfold. No matter what it costs us, we cost Jesus infinitely more. Jesus who took the weight of the world's sin upon his shoulders. Jesus who died in our place, defeated sin and death. Jesus. And his teachings may be radical and they might make you uncomfortable. And that's okay, they make me mightily uncomfortable too. (laughs) These are weighty words to speak. But I think that's the point. They weren't spoken with the intention that one day um, we would come along as master editors and domesticate them and make them more appealing to the masses. They were spoken with the intention of creating real disciples, people who are ready to surrender everything that they have in this life in order to gain everything in the one to come. Real disciples like the Apostle Paul who put it like this, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, because like him in death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. That's Philippians 3, verses 7 to 11. I'm going to ask the band to come up now, and as they do, I'd really like to leave you with an invitation to stand up and to be counted amongst the disciples of Jesus. In the movie Pearl Harbor, which was on my old faves, when Alec Baldwin presents his soldiers with the plan for the Doolittle Raid, he warns them that it's going to be dangerous and that they need to carefully consider whether or not they're prepared to pay the potential cost of life. And then one by one you watch these men and they're convicted of the worth of that mission and so they stand up. It's a powerful image, I think, standing to account And as I read this passage over and over in preparation over the last few weeks, I had this real sense that God was saying, are you going to stand? Are you going to say, yep, I'm all in Jesus? So I'm going to ask you guys to shut your eyes and I will pray. And for those of you who are convinced of the worth of being a disciple of Jesus, I invite you to stand with me while I pray. And you don't need to know how. You just need to know that that's what you want. And if that's not just you just yet, that's okay too. I just encourage you to keep marinating in Jesus' words and keep wrestling with God. It isn't going to be easy. And we may lose a great many things in this life for following him. But he promises to help us keep going and he promises us an eternal weight of glory. So if you're in, stand with me while I pray. Heavenly Father, I just um, thank you so much for for your great sacrifice. 
um, and that your cross paved the way for us to be in relationship with you. And Lord, I just pray that you would give us strength. Give us strength to dethrone our idols and put you in your rightful place as first in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to endure whatever comes our way um, and to do so as an ambassador of Christ, even when it's hard, even when it hurts. And thank you that you promise that you are close to those who are brokenhearted and that you comfort those who mourn because we're going to need that so bad. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us um, as we consider this cost. Please give us strength for the road ahead because we know it's not in us, but it's in you. And may we stand as a testament to the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app. 